If you have your Bibles with you, uh, I encourage you to open up to James chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Uh, and as you're turning there, uh, what a, a week it's been for us in the life of our church. It's been a, a long week, but a, a short month as uh, we've said goodbye uh, to one of our beloved members. And it's not that we, we want to make, um, in, in this season, we want to honor the life that Miss Stephanie has lived because her life honored Jesus. And so in honoring Miss Stephanie, truly we are honoring Jesus. As you're flipping to um, James chapter 3, I'm going to share with you a story of Lilius Trotter. I have a, a picture of her, <clears throat> I believe. Yes, Miss Lilius Trotter. Uh, you may have never heard of her. Uh, but she was an up-and-coming artist in England in the mid to late 1800s. Art critics raved about her potential, particularly in watercolor, uh, that she was a marvelous artist that had the potential to um, become famous for her artwork. And these art critics were willing to invest in her to see her potential become a reality. However, Lilius had felt a different calling on her life. You see, Lilius spent her nights in the streets of London ministering to prostitutes. She later felt a call from the Lord to serve as a missionary to, unreached, uh, to an unreached people group in Algeria, which is located in northern Africa. As she, she sought to do that, uh, because of her health, there were no missions organizations that would support her work. So, not being deterred, she decided to go on her own to northern Africa, where at the time of her death, she had established 13 mission stations that had over 30 workers under the name Algiers Mission Board, united in her vision to bring the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Now, the reason I bring uh, Lilius up is because of a particular writing she had speaking of the Christian life and the things that we value, and I want to read just a portion of it here this morning. This is what she said, and this is, remember, back in the late 1800s, she says this. Never has it been so easy to live in half a dozen good, harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, the following of some good profession, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about the good and hiding the best even more effectually than it could be hidden by downright frivolity with its smothered heartache at its own emptiness. It is easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where the focus lies. Where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning? Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? Does this test not give the clue? Then dare to have it out with God after all. That is the shortest way. Dare to lay bare your whole life in being before him and ask him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and his glory. And then she says this, turn full your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look and look at him. And a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him, for he is worthy to have all there is to be had in the heart he has died to win. It was from this writing of Lilius that the hymn writer we sang this morning penned 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now this morning, we turn our attention to what I'm going to call a non-traditional one-another passage. Uh, We've been looking at various one-another passages in the life of our church as we uh, have two churches that are joining together. So this morning, we're going to look at one particular in James 3, but before we get there, I want to read Psalm 90.12 to us as kind of our our launching point for a one-another passage. It says this, So teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So as we begin this new season of ministry in the life of our church, what will be important for us to truly one another well? What will, what will make us effective in loving one another well, submitting to one another, serving one another well? It will be this, a heart of wisdom. Now listen to how James draws out a life together in wisdom. And he, he gives two contrasts here. This is James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 18. It says this, Who is wise and has understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James is telling us to live a wise life and what this wise life will look like among the church and pitting it against a worldly wisdom and then a godly wisdom. So the question then for us this morning is, how do we attain this wisdom? How do we live a life of wisdom that is honoring to the Lord, God glorifying and good to the church? Proverbs gives us some insight. I want to read two verses out of Proverbs uh, 1 and 9, chapter 9. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So this morning, what our our goal is going to be for us to number our days well, to live with a heart of wisdom, we're going to look at four things. What does it mean to fear the Lord? What is wisdom? How do I get wisdom and a wisdom that saves? Let's start first with what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, I worked in insurance a few years ago, probably five-ish, seven-ish years ago. At one particular company I worked at, Farm Bureau, I had a coworker that hated this idea of the fear of the Lord. And he really withdrew from it because he didn't like the idea of this dread or this terror or this anxiety or pressure. Now, a lot is tied up in our definitions of fear. And so my coworker, the fear of the Lord, it felt oppressive, bullish, domineering, and not true to what he had been taught about God and the Bible. 
And this has been popular opinion by a lot of people. They reject the idea of God because the Bible tells us to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? If God is love, what is there to fear? I mean, consider uh, the words from the Apostle John where he says, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In fact, the most frequently uh, repeated command in Scripture is, do not be afraid. So what does it mean for us to gain wisdom and to fear the Lord? What does it mean to rightly fear the Lord? I think Scripture illuminates this idea. Let me show you a passage out of Isaiah 11 where it speaks of the coming Messiah and what he is going to be like and who he is going to be and what he's going to do. Just verses 1 through 3. Listen to what it says here. This is amazing. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Here we see that the fear of the Lord is not something that the Messiah wishes to be without. It's not that he has the fear of the Lord and is reluctant about it, is skittish about it. No, his, it says his delight is in the fear of the Lord. Now, we all know fear, and we know that there are different kinds of fear, that the type of fear that hair stands up on the back of your neck, heart races, body tense, adrenaline rush. There was one time when I was working with Farm Bureau, we had to go take pictures of houses, and that was terrifying because you just had to go to a stranger's house, take pictures, and you're like, what's this guy doing taking pictures of my house? So I go knock on the door to make sure anybody's home to introduce myself, and when I do, this massive bulldog comes to the door and starts barking, and I'm like, mm, bad news. And so I'm just, you know, slowly backing up. I mean, you know, I'm, I got protection from the door and uh, this dog. But as I turn around, it's like his bark signaled to all the other dogs. I had two Rottweilers coming, and I knew I was in danger. So I made sure that my car was positioned between me and those dogs. I got in the car, and I, I drove off. Uh, we know fear. Fear can be uh, truly terrifying. But fear can also be intensely fun. Think of a roller coaster. It is terrifying, yet fun. It's a, a fear that grips you or excites you. I have a picture here of Jessica and I on a roller coaster. And you will see the gripping fear that has me, I, I am so tense, and the elation of fear and joy that's on Jessica's face. It was terrifying. So let's look at a few references from Scripture that are going to help us, you know, fill out this idea of fear and what it means to fear the Lord. Let's start with Exodus chapter 20. It'll be on the screen. Now, this is when the people have come to the mountain and Moses is speaking to them. It says this, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. 
Moses sets out a contrast between being afraid of God and fearing God. Those who have the fear of him will not be afraid of him, but yet he uses the same word fear for both. And evidently here in this passage, there is a fear of the Lord that is desirable. Michael Reeves calls this a sinful fear and a right fear. Here's a paraphrase of what Reeves says in his book, The Fear of God. He says, the the sinful fear is a fear of God that flows from sin. For example, sinful fear of God is the sort of fear James tells us that the demons have when they believe and they shudder. It is the fear that Adam had when he first sinned and hid from God. Sinful fear drives you away from God. The fear of the unbeliever hates God, for fears being exposed as a sinner, so runs from God. This is the fear of God that is at odds with the love of God. Fear rooted in the very heart of sin, dreading and retreating. The fear that generates doubt and rationalizes unbelief. Man, the the fear that generates doubt and rationalizes unbelief. This sinful fear that flees from God arises from a misunderstanding of who he is. Think of the parable with Jesus of the unfaithful servant. And the master comes back and the servant says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You see, this man sees nothing of his master's kindness. This is the blindness that Satan loves to inflict on our understanding of God. Satan presents God as a threat, and when we perceive him that way, we either run from fear in him or we try to appease him with our good works. You see, when we we see the fear of God as a threat against us, we either run from God or we try to appease him with religiosity and trying to appease him with our good works. But Reeves goes on to describe a right fear of God. Look at, uh, let's look at Jeremiah 32 and where Jeremiah describes that the fear of God is actually a blessing of the new covenant. Listen to what he says. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear, that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might not turn away from me. You see, this is not the devil's fear that sends us away from him. This is a different kind of fear that actually draws us to him. It draws us within him to rest in what does Jeremiah say? His goodness for them. Jeremiah 33 elaborates on this fear that keeps us from turning away. It says this, starting in verse 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all nations of the earth who shall hear of all of the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. You see, this is not fear of punishment. This is the opposite. The Lord promises to cleanse his people, to forgive them, to do great good for them, and they fear and tremble precisely because of all the good he has done for them. 
This is not a fear that stands on the flip side of the grace and goodness of God. Hosea prophesies that the children of Israel shall return and seek their Lord, their God, and David, their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Charles Spurgeon says this about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fear that leans toward the Lord because of his very goodness. It doesn't retract in fear. John Bunyan concluded that the right fear flows primarily from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul, from some sense of hope and mercy from God by Jesus Christ. This is what Bunyan says. Indeed, nothing can lay a stronger obligation upon the heart to fear God than the sense or hope in mercy. This begetteth truth, tenderness of heart, true godly softness of spirit, this truly endeareth the affections to God. And in this true tenderness, softness and endearedness of affection to God lieth the very essence of this fear of the Lord. And I believe that this is what Bunyan, Bunyan is tracking with James here. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then James tells us what about wisdom? That wisdom comes down from on high is what? It's pure. It's peace-loving. It's gentle. It's not skittish. It's not afraid. It doesn't retract. It draws us into the goodness of the Lord. Here's Reeves again. He says, The living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And so we do not love him right if our love is not trembling, if our love is not overwhelmed, if our love is not a fearful love. On the flip side, we love him in his holiness and we tremble at the marvelousness of his mercy. You see, the fear of the Lord then, it comes in two parts. It comes confessing who he is and acting accordingly. It comes to a point of humility and reverence of who we are and who God is. So the fear of the Lord then is both a position and a posture in our being and our doing. It's our position and our posture, knowing that all that I am, all that I am, all that I have, it comes from outside of myself. There is nothing within me that is innately good or has the ability to do good. It is only outside of myself that God is good and God alone. It recognizes position and posture that I am not the author of my own existence. I am not the author of what is good and what is not good. The fear of the Lord puts us in a position and a posture of humility, reverence, awe, trembling, and fear before the Lord. Listen, uh, uh, to what it says in Deuteronomy. It says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. So here we see to fear the Lord is to walk in obedience, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and soul, observe the Lord's commands and decrees. So what does it mean then to fear the Lord rightly? To fear the Lord rightly means that it will lead us to him and not away from him. Listen to what James says in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Now, we know that the beginning of wisdom is from the fear of the Lord. So James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? You go to the Lord, ask the Lord, and he will give it to you generously without finding fault. What is wisdom? For us to live a life of wisdom, to 
to us to number our days well. Wisdom is one of those really weighty words, isn't it? It's something that we would all like to be known for, being wise, prudent, handling situations rightly. You know, we can probably all think of someone instantly in our lives who has lived a wise life, someone that we confide in or that we go to. And doesn't it seem like that type of person, they just possess that wisdom, like it's just innately within them, they just have it, they're just wise, they have something smart or good to say all the time? Their wisdom can seem effortless. But that's not how it's presented in Scripture. Let's, let me show you the Hebrew word for wisdom and how that unpacks what wisdom is for us a little bit. The Hebrew word uh, that gets translated to wisdom is hokmah. And hokmah is often translated to skill. So Exodus 32, the skill or the wisdom of the craftsmen that worked on the tabernacle. Psalm 107 speaks of seasoned mariners, talking about the wits or wisdom of the seasoned mariners. 1 Kings talks about the wisdom or the skill and administrative abilities. 2 Samuel talks about the skill or the wisdom of the counselor. In Proverbs, hokmah signifies skillful living as wisdom. So what do these examples of hokmah show us? That, That wisdom is not something that is innately within us but rather it is a practiced and learned skill. That wisdom is a skill that can be developed and learned from the Lord. Wisdom then isn't innate, it isn't an innate trait. You either have it or you don't. It's learned and developed through the fear of the Lord. Think, think about it, husbands and wives. You know, when uh, maybe you've been married for a long time and you just know that there are some words that you have within your marriage that, that can just twist a knife or just, just point a finger and it can really cause harm or blame. Or we can learn the skill of wisdom. Proverbs, it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. We can hide the words of our Lord in our heart and as we do and as we meditate on these things and repeat these things, we develop Uh, a learned wisdom that is given to us from the Lord. So the fear of the Lord, uh, the right fear of the Lord, that's our question. What is the right fear of the Lord? It brings us to him. We see else here, I believe in James, that the fear of the Lord will lead us to one another. You see, the fear of the Lord, it cannot mean that we deal with each other in such severity that causes fear to run and hide but one that invites to come into the light and to be made new. The fear of the Lord, what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means that you are led in his ways. Let's read verse 17 in James 3 again. But wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive. To fear the Lord means to be pure. It means that we have no mixed motives or agendas. There's no uh, attempt to gain an advantage or to get ahead. You know, predatory pastors, we, we've seen them in uh, just wherever. I mean, they, their goal is to seek control of the church, to, to make sure that if, if they're ever ousted, the church will fall apart. That's not uh, wisdom that comes from the Lord. We see that wisdom from the Lord, to fear the Lord, is to be peace-loving. Now, this is not to be confused with peacekeeping, You see, peace-loving inserts ourselves into difficult situations. Peace-loving seeks to reconcile. Peace-loving seeks to share. Peace-loving seeks to love. 
peacekeeping just avoids. I can keep the peace in my house by turning on Bluey and my kids being fine, right? But peace-loving enters myself next to them, with them, to help them to gain wisdom and understand and reconcile to one another. To fear the Lord is to be considerate. You see, nice is pleasant. Considerate takes interest. You see, we can be, be nice, but the fear of the Lord is considerate. And a considerate person is one that takes interest. One of the most considerate men that I know is Kurt Isles. He used to be the former principal here at ACS. And what made Kurt so considerate is what, that he what, wasn't just nice. He was genuinely invested and concerned about you. He genuinely wanted to know how you were doing. It wasn't the, how are you today? I'm doing good. All right, see you later. It was, no, tell me about Jess and the kids. What are the kids doing these days? What, what's Jess up to? It was a considerate love that pushed into me. The fear of the Lord then is also submissive. It's not considering ourselves more important than someone else, willing to serve the needs of the church. Fear of the Lord is impartial and sincere. So for us to one another well, for us to live as a church well in this new season of ministry, we must live in the fear of the Lord. And when we live in the fear of the Lord, it will give us, he will give us a wisdom that allows us to number our days and give us a heart for one another. Now we see here in James, there's also a distorted wisdom. He says, if, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You see, when we don't live by the Lord's wisdom, when we don't fear the Lord, when we do not fear the Lord, three things will happen. It will distort the view of ourselves, it will distort our view of others, and it distorts our view of God. It, it distorts our view of ourself to say, my sin is not, it's not really that bad. It will distort our view of others to say, well, they just need me to take control here. They, they need for me to just bump them around a little bit. It's impartial. It's insincere. It's not kind. It's not considerate. It's unspiritual, is what James says. And then lastly, it distorts our view of God. When we, when we don't fear the Lord, then we are in a posture of pride where we exalt ourselves, and James calls this demonic. So, so here is you know, the rub for us today. For us to live a life of wisdom, for us to one another well, we must rightly fear the Lord. But is that all wisdom is? A learned skill that comes from fearing the Lord appropriately. I don't think it is. And this is wonderful. Let me show you in Proverbs 8 how wisdom becomes personified. Uh, if you have your Bible, you want to flip over to Proverbs 8, it'll be here on the screen, starting in verse 12. Listen to, uh, yeah, this is lady wisdom, but listen to what it says in Proverbs 8. It says, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. 
By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule the earth. Then the person of wisdom really ramps this claim up in verse 22. Look at what it says. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there was no watery depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When the Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, verse 29, when he established the fountains of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What is wisdom describing here? Do you catch the language? It's the creation account. That in the beginning, wisdom was there as a master workman, creating with the Father, rejoicing in him, delighting in the children of man. And who does this sound a lot like? Doesn't it sound just like Jesus in the description of the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is nothing made that was not come through this Word. Paul just comes right out and says it in 1 Corinthians he says that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of God is the cross, and this should cause us to tremble, that the Lord Most High, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, the creator of all things, the one whom all things is held together in his great love and mercy, came down to die the death that we deserve, and this should cause us to tremble at his mercy and his holiness, at his goodness and his righteousness. So then for us, what we see is that it is not just a wisdom that we attain by fearing the Lord. It's not just a learned skill. Wisdom then is a person that we receive in Christ Jesus, the wisdom and power of God. And in Christ Jesus, the Lord was pleased to dwell, and he was pleased to reconcile us to God in Christ Jesus. So we can acquire all the wisdom we can by learning wise sayings. We can acquire the skill of being prudent and wise. Or we can come to true wisdom, Jesus, the one whose delight is in the fear of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon argued that while believers have 
an adoring fear of God, we who believe in Jesus are not afraid of God, even as our king. For we know the beautiful character of the one who rules, the sovereign creator and a gracious and merciful redeemer. Listen to what Spurgeon says here. Gazing upon the vast expanse of waters, looking up to the innumerable stars, examining the wing of an insect, and seeing there the matchless skill of God displayed in the minute, or standing in a thunderstorm, watching as best you can the flashes of lightning, and the listening to the thunder of Jehovah's voice. Have you not often shrunk into yourself and said, Great God, how terrible art thou! Not afraid, but full of delight, like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth, his father's wisdom, his father's power, happy and at home, but feeling, oh, so little. Do you hear that delight in the fear of the Lord? As we turn to close, I want to invite you to have the mirror reflect back on you and to ask ourselves, what is it that you fear? You see, our fears show us what we truly love. We fear our our children getting hurt because we love them. We fear rejection or criticism because of our, our reputation. What do my fears say about me and my priorities? What do I treasure? What do I fear more, God or man? Do I fear being a sinner or being exposed as a sinner? You see, the the fear of the Lord is, is something that we should tremble at. We should tremble at his goodness and mercy, but also his might and his holiness. In the presence of the Lord, everyone trembles. Abraham, Joshua, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, Paul, John, all fell on their faces. But it's not just people who tremble. The Old Testament prophet, Nahum, he says, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Just so, all things one day will shake and tremble at the second coming of Christ. The earth shakes with the trembling of exaltation, the believer's joy that will swell with the delight in the presence of their God. Romans 8 says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The earth and all who are the Lord's will shout with joy at his appearance in a fearful tremble. And at the same time, those who have a sinful fear of unbelievers will swell in a horrified dread as they hide and cry, as Revelation says, for the mountains to fall on them. Their fear of the Lord will be an ultimate dread, and the believer's fear will be their ultimate delight. So, As we close this morning, we want to have a heart of wisdom. We need the Lord to teach us to number our days so that we could love one another well, so that we can serve one another well, come alongside one another well. And this is daily. Our our need for wisdom, our need to seek the Lord, our need to fear the Lord is daily. So what do we sing? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Hokma, wisdom, is a skill. It's learned. So what do we say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. In our sin, in our shame, we look at Jesus in his gentleness, or let's say it as James says, in his purity, in his peacemaking, in his love, in his kindness towards us. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. Helen Lemel was struck by a disease that caused her to go blind. And when she went blind, uh, her husband left her. But you know what stuck with her were these words from Lilius. And Hemel, uh, Helen Lemel wrote the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. In her blindness, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. We don't have to hope that the Lord will be merciful to us. We don't have to hope that the Lord will maybe find some goodness in us. No, it doesn't leave us panicking in the fear of the Lord. No, our hope is in Jesus, the one who saves, the one who has the ability to save. And the fear of the Lord leaves us in adoration and trembling, delight and awe, fear and wonder, joy and satisfaction in him, and confession of sin and elation of mercy. So this morning, the invitation is to come to the wisdom of God in Jesus. Delight in the fear of the Lord and his wisdom on high. Perfectly pure, peace-loving, and gentle. Let's pray together. Jesus, I I pray uh, that we can be a church that is known not for our activity or not for um, something necessarily superficial, but Father, that we be known as a church that operates by the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that comes on high. That when people come into the presence of our church, they're really entering into your presence as one body who is united in your spirit, who operates in a pure, peace-loving, gentle, open to reason, impartial and sincere, considerate manner. I pray that we can be a church that forsakes all other worldly ideas of success and pleasure And Father, that we we truly lift our gaze to you, that we turn our eyes to you, the wisdom and power of God. Jesus, if, if there's anyone here this morning who has not trusted in you, who's not come to you, who is running in fear and shame from you, who has distorted their view of you, they're afraid of you, Father, I pray that you, the hound of heaven, come after them. Father, calling them lovingly and gently to yourself, Father, because you, your yoke is light and your burden is easy. And so I pray that we truly believe that this morning, that we truly see your goodness and love and the wisdom of Jesus. I pray that we be a church that operates in this manner. Father, when we don't, I pray that we be quick to confess our sins, that we be quick to confess our sins to one another. So in this time, I pray, Lord, that you bless us to love and come humbly and trembling before you. So we gather to the table in your presence. 
Jesus, I pray that your spirit be with us to convict of sin and lead us to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.